0: Hello, I'm Julie Bindle, and this week I'm speaking with Shara Ali, who's been a Green Party activist for 20 years.
1: I can't abide by discrimination. I can't abide by discrimination when it's against others, whether it's race discrimination, sex discrimination. I've had many cases in my life when I've stuck my neck out. Yes, for women. And I think I've got better in my life, funnily enough, at not grinning and bearing it when it's targeted for myself.
0: In 2001, He was party leadership candidate, standing on the issue of supporting women's sex-based rights. For nine years, he held the role of national spokesperson, including two years as deputy leader. But since 2018, Shah has been subjected to unrelenting abuse, harassment and detriment because of supporting women's sex-based rights and speaking out against the trans women are women mantra that the Green Party, along with many others, have adopted. So Shara is taking a case against the Green Party and what he's hoping to do is to show that the party is failing in its duty of care towards him and others preferring to facilitate and endorse the present hostile environment and conducting itself contrary to the provisions of the Equality Act 2010. And I know many other activists who have also been monstered, but none as high profile as Shara, for believing, basically, in women's sex-based rights. Here he
1: is. I've been active in the Green Party uh, for 20 years, and I've been active throughout that time, two decades you know as a candidate and as a campaigner and often you don't go into green politics so to speak to get elected quick or even at all you know it's it's very much a vocation and it's been a calling for me as well I mean I've always been political even before I I joined the party I kind of felt that if I see injustice going on around me I will act I'm one of those who might even put myself at risk and I have done it's not just something that I can switch off And the last few years in particular, um, the Green Party has been in the grip, I would say, of an authoritarian culture, a council culture. And I and many other stalwarts of the party have had to face that down, whether through dealing with weaponised complaints um, or in other ways, just a nod and a wink, you can't say that or you can't do this. And in particular, as we know, um, through wider society, the, the the topic of the day that has really been the cause of this conflict um, in the party and in wider society and in the left of politics, which we might come on to, is, loosely speaking, um, the debate on sex and gender. And, I mean, this really um, became an issue for me, particularly in the 2020 leadership election. And there was a question, a fairly, one might think, innocuous question, put to deputy leader candidates, and I was a leadership candidate. What is a woman? How
0: did we get to this stage? Why was that question so central at that time? Because we know that that had come not out of the blue, but after years of a pushback against extreme gender ideology... What what that happened was... to the Greens with this, and when did the rot set in, do you think?
1: You're, you're right, and there is um, an infamous case, of course, of Amy Chaloner, who um, some of us uh, knew and, and worked alongside. Um, they were being um, promoted uh, in the party for sure, and things went pear-shaped um, when <laughs> the scandal broke about their their family history and um, their father being imprisoned for horrendous, horrific uh, sex crimes and other abuse. So that was when, um, that was the 2018 uh, leadership election, and they were a deputy leader candidate. That was when you could see, I think, the party in something of a a mental straitjacket in terms of their external comms. They couldn't just call a spade a spade. They couldn't abhor and condemn um, what was unfolding before their eyes. And they felt that they had to defend, I would say, in terms of their laxadaical attitude um, to to the emerging media storm. They felt that they couldn't condemn outright what was happening uh, right in the midst of the party and and the associations that were going on and the the questions that were being asked, which gave rise to an independent review. And at that time, even in 2018, The party was having trouble and activists in the party were having trouble uh, in party conference, putting forward motions around what even then I think we were describing as, you know, sex based rights campaigns. And there was an incident also outside a conference, um, October 2018 at Bristol Conference, where some women were seeking to uh, campaign on this issue and drawing members' attention to it, just as a matter of free speech. And it was at that moment that I thought, irrespective of my own personal or political, often these align, I I tend to be fairly closely aligned, um, in how I articulate myself uh, in public and in politics, to my true beliefs. Um, Even at that point, I thought, whatever um, my political views on sex gender as a topic, I could not countenance people in our own party trying to stamp down on women in, in larger public in their campaigns, seeking only the modest aim of voicing their concerns. Now, and I just found that friend... extraordinary.
0: Well, it is extraordinary, but I'm going to put the cat amongst the pigeons here now and suggest that the Green Party has never been a friend to women. Obviously, you know, Greens are as diverse as membership or politicians, active party members across the political spectrum. I would say that one big ideological gap for the Greens has always been about sexism, um, about misogyny, and sexual exploitation. And I'll tell you why I'm saying that because it got itself in a real muddle some years ago, way before the whole gender debate became so toxic and per- pervasive over prostitution or sex work, as the Greens would would have it, on its its official policy. And many of us at the time, say back in 2010, whenever lobbied leadership then to say, you can't possibly be a party that is looking to stave off the destruction of the planet and have all of your other policies about equality and anti-oppression and the like and say that sex work is work and that paying for sex is an acceptable leisure activity so i think that actually this is part and parcel of the greens turning a blind eye to sexism and then later on to sex itself what do you think
1: well i think i mean there's a good example and in fact it is one of the the few areas because we're often asked you know in different contexts is there anything in the green party policy that you disagree with and i would say that's that's it you know the idea that you can decriminalize sex work without taking account of the horrific context and background that that kind of um service if you want to call it that um scare quotes takes place in i think that's a bad analysis and even in our own party, you know, there has there were you know rifts even when that, those debates were happening in terms of trying to accommodate both sides. I'm not sure it's possible. And I do think, you know, I think we've had Karen and Lucas. I think certainly um, advocating more the the so-called Nordic model, and um, Natalie Bennett. I think pursuing the decriminalisation approach. So, and I, I do think that the facts bear out the wrongness of of that approach. And but you're right. There may be a an analysis in terms of, well, why, why have we gone wrong at that point? Is it sexism as such? Well, it may also be partly explained by, I think, a propensity to virtue signal. And, you know, there's a lot in that in terms of how it tends to bring with it identity politics. And the idea, therefore, that uh, that it's empowering to facilitate choices, even though there might be bad choices. I think what it tends to do is it we lose track of we fail then to call, call out bad decisions for what they are and we try and romanticise them and as if they're purely to do with personal autonomy, irrespective of the context in which people are making those decisions. And I don't think it can be reasonably argued that women uh, having, feeling compelled in whatever way to uh, engage uh, in that uh, activity or service are doing so through maximal empowerment I think that that's a big mistake so I
0: completely agree with you in terms of that analysis and how this is about identity and virtue signaling rather than looking at the actual context in which this decision is made the reason why I've I suppose, open this topic within the broader Mm. issue that we're discussing today, is I think it's highly relevant, because it's not just about what happened to the Green Party and how, but it's also about what's happening with the virtue signalling young people and others that think that they're on the right side of history, when in fact they're advocating great harm to women and other uh, vulnerable and oppressed groups. So, trans activists and the sex work is work activists are one and the same and I'm targeted by both and they are the same people so they'll come along to my book launch for example on the sex trade where I've clearly stated that I believe that this is an abuse of women and girls and of course any men involved uh, in prostitution and they chant things like you know get your hands off my body my body my choice Blow jobs are real jobs, which is the most ridiculous slogan I've ever heard. And these are also trans activists because they're saying, you know, trans women um, pay for their surgery and hormones privately through doing sex work. So that's their argument. If you're against trans women, which they think we are, and we're not, of course, if we're against trans ideology, we're also against sex work and that, you know, we are the bad feminists. Now, You mentioned Caroline Lucas and how she was on, what I would say, the right side of this debate. So she actually nailed her colours to the mast and said that she supported the introduction of the Nordic model, which is criminalising the purchase of sex and decriminalising the women and men who are prostituted. And it's been tried and tested in many countries, as we know. And so Caroline was on the right side and she was definitely someone that we could speak to about it, then all of a sudden, she completely did a reverse ferret. Guess why? Or rather, guess when? Immediately after she was cornered by one of the most vocal and, in my view, aggressive trans-activists, Paris Lees, who has said that they used to be a sex worker, quote-unquote, And that the two things are indivisible. And Paris Lees persuaded Caroline Lucas to change tack. And I thought that was absolutely morally reprehensible, cowardly and a terrible betrayal that Caroline Lucas went that route. And that's when I realised there was no hope for the Green Party when it came to women. And this, of course, was before Natalie Bennett went all full trans activists.
1: I think what you're saying... um can also show itself in in other areas um, which aren't which shouldn't have anything to do um, with transgender rights um, uh, per se take surrogacy for example I think we're again we're in a potential muddle there where we're not breaking through and saying the right things for fear maybe of offending um, others and so you know a few years ago, uh, Green Party Women, which is a, a grouping you know w- within the Green Party who have had their own conflicts and battles, were saying advocating quite clearly about the harms and the risks and, and the dangers and exploitativeness, particularly of commercial surrogacy. And you know there's a debate there which I think, if we were genuinely um, considering the harms, even just pros and cons, I think we would come out with a strong policy. But I feel as if there are a number of areas now where there's a bit of a vacuum in party policy. And one of the the, the biggest harms, almost an indirect consequence of the no debate stance, is a complete stasis with respect to genuinely, what one might call, although it's becoming an empty expression, progressive policy. We're becoming incapable now of having a debate across the board, uh, including on the existential environmental calamity that's about to face us. That is why it's so destructive. Um, And that is why I think it's given me additional energy, you know, to try and on on the sex gender front to try and make sure that people feel empowered within politics generally to be able to speak their mind and even, you know, in, in that in that old fancy expression, no bliss, oblige, agree to disagree. I mean, there's something in that. I've, I've found that a bit of a cop-out in the past, but now I'm thinking things are so desperate, yes, I actually want to be able to say, can we please just agree to disagree on this one?
0: Oh, I couldn't agree more. I mean, this is the thing that, you know, we, the bar is set so low currently, you mm. know, a world champion limbo dancer would have problems. You know, we, we, we now are in a situation where we are being called fascist, Yes. By wishing to engage in soft conservatism, for example. Mm. And this is just about looking at the world in its multifaceted form. But let's let's have a look, because you've been a victim of this, an absolute victim, and I, I hate the term cancel culture because what they say about the likes of Oz is, well, you're not cancelled, you're still um in the public eye, you're still writing articles, you're still in your post, whatever. But what we know it means is being harassed, sidelined, um, completely um, misrepresented to the point of defamation and the like. And actually, it's a daily grind to put up with this, isn't it? But this is your political position and... Your role that you came into politics yes. for, so so let's go back to what happened yeah. with you. So there you were, an active party member, yes. for two decades almost when this started. Yeah. D- d- can you pinpoint where it began? Because sometimes these things kind of just g- build gradually, don't they? Or was there a was there a moment when you knew oh there's trouble coming?
1: Yeah, no, there it was that 2018, four years ago now, um, leadership election was one in which I could see very clearly. Um, an alignment and and I I suppose I, I picked a side um, which might have seen visibly to be the minority and it probably was and it was the moment when not only were deputy leader candidates unprepared to answer a straight question definitionally on what is a woman and I felt were embarrassing, uh, something that I sometimes I think wrongly get accused of, of doing, I think they were embarrassing the party, I think they were making us look incredible. And even though that question wasn't put to me, I decided to put a statement out in you know, July, that summer 2020, <laughs> setting out what I felt um, any political party worthy of, you know, the, the credibility of, of, the, of the electorate should be able to state clearly and categorically uh, as an adult human female or typically with two XX chromosomes and to go on from there and to state quite clearly why it was such an important thing to be able to state and um that set me apart i think immediately and also the channeler scandal which i don't want to go too much into but essentially that showed various alignments i think you mentioned Caroline lucas i mean it's worth saying because she went on the public record she wrote um, a very sympathetic article um uh, about channeler i thought amy channel i think was ill advised but i think that also showed the kind of mental straitjacket where people trying to look both ways um facing negative backlash and not being able to just say straight what an appalling incident, we should have had better quality control in our party, trying to farm it out and kick it into the long grass and kick it further down, you know, by <laughs> commissioning an independent review and all the rest of it. And so, you know, I don't think we've probably learned the lessons of that in terms of the, the the groupthink authoritarianism, which we were in the grip in grip of. Um, and it was, you know, Channelner was actually instrumental in moving the motion which made its way... Um, just a few years prior to that, into party policy, uh, trans women and women, that made its way into their, into party policy, and it became increasingly um, prominent as a policy as the years went on. And, you know, these were things that, um, when I was asked internally around even uh, 2020 there, you know, yes or no, do you believe that? And I said, I'm not going to give you a yes or no. Well, I, well, I answered Uh, more than yes or no I said well as a statement of gender identity (laughs) and um, you know we can call it that but one mustn't conflate sex with gender so you know fast forwarding a little bit then um, things really uh, got difficult for me you know after putting my head above the parapet in 2018 and and also saying something of all the candidates the only candidate to say something um, around the channel scandal even before you know the results were announced I think I then faced and had to face down multiple, uh, I would say weaponized, vexatious complaints, alleging transphobia, all of which I successfully fought down. And at the same time, and I don't think she minds me saying this because she's on the record as well, B Campbell um, was receiving complaints. And I, I, I come back to the point before finishing your original question. We have become a hostile environment for women, brilliant women in the party b campbell andrea Carey, fuller there are others you know rebecca johnson people have a long history you know in in the greenham common in the movement and i just put it to you that how can um we take ourselves to be inclusive when we are forcing people out of the party like that brilliant women and you know i'm i'm a candidate at the moment you know and i say i didn't want to have to be the candidate i would rather a woman was um coming forward and we do have some brilliant women candidates in other posts but the fact is that one of those best women uh, felt hounded out of the party um, just two years ago as a deputy leader candidate so we're losing them and we've lost them and we have become a hostile environment and coming back to you know the idea of council culture it's real and a, a pithy description of it might be well it's disproportionate is it in its consequences and our detractors of course will say that you know you reap what you sow and you've got this coming no we don't this is disproportionate going for one's employer outside my green political work which has happened yes having to face down vexatious complaints with my which went to my employer that's your livelihood that's disproportionate that's passive aggressive because often it's anonymized and how if i may say you know the likes of yourself and myself and you know um alison bailey's and my forces of this world and many others besides taking court cases forward yeah we are i can see it we're 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 fight not flight right but that's hard that carries costs huge costs incalculable not just financial but emotional and it's because you know and i would say i would say i'm a fighter and they would have realized that when they went for me as a spokesperson so fast forwarding to um there was the 20 2021 now sort of last summer some of all last uh, 2021 um when i was reappointed as a spokesperson national spokesperson that was something which and i can name names now because it's all going to come out in in far bigger fashion right shawn berry in particular um she had a you know she she was determined to um to stop me from being a spokesperson. And that's when it began. That's when it really was ratcheted up, the the hostility internally. And there were many brilliant um, Greens uh, who saw what was happening to me as well, and they spoke out, they wrote in about it. um, They spoke out against the treatment I was facing, the the hostility, the harassment, and all the rest of it. And it was under that intense pressure when um, the executive committee... Uh, Met in order to try and reverse um, a properly taken decision because I'd gone through an appointments process to appoint me. And that failed. That failed at the first hurdle uh, in June 2021. And this is why I have a very strong case. And it's not just I would say that, wouldn't I? It is. And when members see this all happening in open court, and I hope and I pray that it goes the right way, they will see, I think they will be shocked. At how recklessly even the party is defending this case
0: it's it's unbelievable because if yes. you if you look at the way that Garden Court Chambers recklessly vigorously some would say vexatiously defended um the case brought by Alison Bailey, if you also look at how Maya Forstutter was put through the mill with her former employer, they also went hell for leather in defending themselves, justifying themselves. Yes. And now we hope this will be another example of how you really should think twice before you do this within a political party. I'm currently um, in dispute with Nottingham City Council, who stopped me from speaking at a public event on male violence towards women because trans activists bullied them into it and they put out defamatory statements about me. So we need to fight from all cylinders, which we are. So we've got the, the, the employment a tribunal, we've got barristers' chambers, we've got political parties, we've got local authorities, we unfortunately need to take them all on in order to stop them thinking that this is just their, their playing field. I mean, they just think they can do what they
1: want. And, and you know, and if I may say, hats off to you for that, Julie, because it does take its toll and it is hard. And the thing is, when that unfolded around... I mean, that is a quintessential free speech issue about the use of public space irrespective of you know Voltaire says i may I, I may disagree with you but defend to the death your right to say it and it's more than that isn't it and it's absolutely preposterous that there wasn't unanimity across the political spectrum just saying how dare we think of doing this to a public speaker and so that's when you kind of make your own bed so to speak that's when you know time and again story after story and bear in mind that i was spokesperson for policing and domestic safety and this is the other thing you know i'm duty-bound to discuss shall we say um uh, the lack of proper um, uh, crime reporting sex data reporting among the police i'm duty-bound to talk about um single sex prison spaces as a political issue as it's going through the lords you know as an amendment So, you know, this is part of my role and I wouldn't be doing my role properly. So, yes, and I'm duty-bound as a party spokesperson to look at current policy, which I think I'm good at, having written a couple of books on green politics and put motions through from time to time. I know what's in order, what isn't, and understanding the values of the party. So I think what's very interesting is that I have no point accepted, certainly not that I've ever said or done anything transphobic, and I've at no point accepted that I haven't, um, put the party in the best possible light. And so there is a real conflict then in terms of what is potentially the Green Party's position and how, and it's never been demonstrated to me, how I'm supposed to have, and this is what the court case will be about, broken the spokesperson's code. And right. the sh- absolute shenanigans, you will not, yeah, maybe I'm saying a bit too much, but I'm not actually saying that much. But the fact is, You know, when you've got a star chamber, which is especially created because you didn't get your way, my detractors, at the first attempt. When you create a star chamber, when you rewrite the code of conduct, and I then dutifully sign it, (laughs) and then you try your darndest to hang me on something and you fail because there's no evidence and it's been rebutted at every point. And when you've got executive officers, elected executive officers, who withdraw from that star chamber, which they are members of citing that it is worse the effect of it's corrupt or it has no integrity and it's been set up in order to censure me. That is a strong case. When you've got a GPEX officer resigning ahead of the date which was flagged to remove me, citing that as the reason, that is a strong case. If it was an employment tribunal, it's not an employment tribunal, but if you think of it, loosely speaking, as a role which is like um, a contract which you're giving somebody to do, and they've done nothing wrong. You've not shown it to them. I mean, in, in other environments, you know, I, I deal with HR matters and all the rest of it. I even serve on disciplinaries and appeals um, in other contexts. And I can see what a strong case is. And the fact is that if you're putting the, the, you know, if you're not even giving anybody a proper explanation, and notionally, I was on probation. So that's extraordinary in itself. If you withdraw all their support, you, you know, I mean, that's like um, that's like setting them up to fail, and they still don't fail, Right. So you're, you're actually removing their life support system in terms of their usual contact when you're putting them through some kind of um, bespoke uh, disciplinary process in order to try and hang them. And it's all automated. That is a strong case. So I don't, and, and, you know, let me say quite clearly, I can't abide by discrimination. I can't abide by discrimination when it's against others, whether it's race discrimination, sex discrimination. I've had many cases in my life when I've stuck my neck out. Yes, for women who for whatever reason may have felt disempowered. I have done that and I've done it in terms of, of, you know, racist incidents as well. And I think I've got better in my life, funnily enough, at not grinning and bearing it when it's targeted at myself. And, you know, rightly or wrongly, from the Greens part of view, they happen to have caught me in a moment in my adult life where I'm not going to tolerate it. Um, If it had been towards somebody else and I've got particular insight because it's directed at myself, I'm not going to tolerate it. And I've been the victim of that discrimination and I've got the fight in me and this fight has legs on it and it's important. It's important for the future, not just a course correction for the Green Party, and, you know, but it's also for, for wider politics um, itself and particularly the left of politics. And don't anybody, ever, don't anybody ever tell you that the Green Party is different from other parties? We're not. We're essentially, there's a lot of Machiavellian tendency in our party. Um, there, there is a great deal of manipulation going on in our party. It, it's, it's really bad. And in a, in a sense, we're worse because we pretend to be better.
0: That, that's what angers so many feminists. And, you know, you mentioned B. Campbell. B. Campbell's a very good and old friend of mine and feminist uh, campaigner. She's a sister. And we had some great humdingers of, of arguments when she joined the Green Party because I said to her, look... You know, this party doesn't care about women, but it it actually presents itself as smug and superior. And, of course, that was me being rude and provocative. But, you know, I think that that's what actually got B in the end, that they were supposed to be better. She joined to make them or to maintain that kind of integrity. And then it, it hit her in the face. And actually, this is what... It's a very important issue that people need to understand. That they might, those listening, will know certain names. They'll know yours. They might know mine. Alison Bailey, Kathleen Stock, Maya Forstutter and others that have been through the mill on this, that have fought and that in some ways have won. But all we're doing is actually keeping our head above the water. And as you said, it's at great cost. None of us wanted to be in this fight. None of us. And we've all lost a great deal, even if we've won our cases. But you know, it's what Mary Lang, the academic, said: "Is reverse Voltaire." And you quoted that earlier about, yes, you know, "I'll fight <laughs> to the death." Uh, you're right to say it, even if I disagree with it. I can't remember the exact words. But she, but but what she actually explains in a, in a great paper at uh, the reverse Voltaire is that this is something that is sent as a warning to others. So in other words, we're held up as the, oh my God, don't say what they're saying because look what happened to them. And, you know, it was happening to me for a number of years before the mad notion of self-ID, you know, bitters on the arse and groups started forming to, to, to resist that and trans ideology went off the scale. But she says that reverse Voltaire actually leaves people terrified, and it actually makes cowards of others, where they're thinking, I completely agree with what you say, but I'll fight to the death to prevent you from saying it. And this is, I think, the situation that we're in now, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's brilliant. I mean, you know, I'm I'm a lover of aphorisms, and particularly when you put a twist on it, and, and that's, that's just a great um, example of it. I mean, we've got... I mean, I often... It's like... Um, there's this notion of active bystander, isn't there? And I've, I've sort of described probably that I, I do tend to to be active when I see injustice happening. But it's those who stand by, who are facilitating this, who also have a great deal of power over what happens. And it's it's just as described. You know, they're they're not their failure to act. It really is um, a form of of action. It is facilitating this. It's allowing what I regard as a vocal sometimes powerful minority to hold the party hostage and and that's what's happening and the more of us that speak out um you know the the emma bateman's um door furnaces of this world um you know, uh, there's a little quip here i think um uh if one is uh three court cases coming okay so if if one is um Uh, unlucky and two is misfortune well I think three court cases right I mean that just shows something is really uh, going wrong systemically in the party so you know we are we have become authoritarian we had a motion uh, earlier this year which would have expelled it was using uh, a more innocuous language suspend but the effect would have been exactly the same to expel how authoritarian is this it's Kafkaesque right to expel members of a political party for having signed A declaration an international women's declaration right now you may have some misgivings as I Uh know Kathleen Uh stocks often you know having to face down these allegations you may have some misgivings about the wording okay however that may be Um, this is irrespective of when you sign it so you might have signed it before you join the party Um, you are then that's going to become some kind of test of entry into the party and retrospectively as well so something you did in the past is going to be used against you and somehow you're going to cross-check there's whole data protection issues but the absurdity right i mean if it wasn't so fanatical it would be absurd right to bring a motion like that to conference to, i mean it was beaten down now this shows strength uh in the party now uh the fight back the fight back is strong and we will prevail and we already are and that that kind of motion was stopped in its tracks uh, an attempt was made to put it again to the, the next conference this autumn, and that's already been stopped. So I do think that there is a real opportunity here, and um, to for a course correction. And there has been even whilst my case was launched, you know, there have been some significant developments. Of course, you know, not just in terms of the Tavistock um, Gids closure or the announcement of it, you know, and Maya Fawcett's and, and uh, Alison Bailey's uh, successes. So, you know, this is all very good news. Things are going in the right direction. I think UK often is um, thought of, you know, as um, where it's happening. And I think that they'd be right in that. I think there is something uh, even about our judicial system, which does enable, despite the horrific costs, it does enable some semblance of of justice to prevail, uh, you know, despite the cost, um, human cost. Uh,
0: absolutely. and And actually speaking of justice, and I know that you chose not to go into it in detail and I respect that. I'm going to give a little bit of detail about mm. the Chaloner uh, case, the David Chaloner case, David Chaloner being the father of Amy Chaloner, a trans-identified person, um, who was defended quite vigorously by by Caroline um, Lucas in her article that you referred to, I think that was published in The Guardian. And Beatrix Campbell was, this is really how the problem started for her when she insisted that this should be aired, that this should be looked at properly. B is someone that has devoted much of her life to child protection issues and to countering childhood sexual abuse. And so for those that aren't aware of what happened, David Challoner, who was in fact a member he was a Green Party figure in Coventry wasn't he and it transpired uh, that he had been using his um, his address as the official Green Party address in 2015 he was eventually caught and convicted for the horrendous rape torture and imprisonment of a little girl I think a 10 year old in that house And David uh, Chaloner was sentenced to 22 years. That was right and just. But what was not dealt with was the fact that Amy Chaloner, who was a young trans activist at the time, was a rising star, became the Green Party's equality spokesperson in 2017 and a party candidate. And this is the key issue, isn't it? That being pitched into the party's deputy leadership election, There had been no discussion and no transparency over the fact that the Green Party uh, and other organisations associated with Amy Chaloner, such as Stonewall, didn't ask questions about the connection, about the address being used by, uh, which was in fact a crime scene, and all kinds of connected scandals around that. And so there needed to be a deep dive, a scrutiny, into how this had happened. And the inquiry, of course, should have asked how on earth the party, and this was B. Campbell's view, it's certainly my view in the view of many others, how the party had completely lost the plot when it came to transgender issues, sexual politics, and the hardline trans policies that meant that Amy Chaloner was not scrutinised and nor was this investigated in a way that it would have been had Amy Challoner not identified as transgender, and in fact you know there were other members who were um who were speaking out about this, who were asking questions of the then leadership about this, Olivia Palmer, for example, who was expelled, and others and so and we we also know that that Amy Challoner operated a block list against what what Challoner uh referred to as trans exclusionary radical feminist turfs, of course. Uh, blocked fifty thousand people, referred to to us as bigots, and and you know resulting in in many uh, feminists, including one uh, transgender person, being banned from Twitter for life. So, you know, this was something that we still haven't actually had uh, a real um, investigation on. We haven't heard what the party thought of the fact that the address was being used in the way that it was. All we had. Was accusations from Caroline Lucas and others that those of us that that were appalled at this uh, were transphobic towards Amy Chaloner, which is actually quite an extraordinary story, isn't
1: it? It's the power of denial. Um, it's shooting the messenger. I mean, this is this is Chaloner has been um, co-responsible for the culture in the party right now and and they were pretty instrumental also at the time as was uh, David david who you've mentioned was an active very active member in the full life of the party so they were uh, instrumental in bringing certain policies to conference some of which were passed um Some of the things that I've been attacked for as well are bringing well-founded and well-grounded in party values, I would say, policies to conference. And one that's coming back shortly um, is a motion to disaffiliate from Stonewall. And here is another example where I would say we could have been ahead of the curve. We could have already found ways of disaffiliating. But I would say one of the most important reasons to do that, you know, in addition to value for money, uh, trying to avoid poor legal advice, is that it's impacting our ability to make policy. It's skewing our ability to think clearly. Um, And even uh, the BBC cited this as a reason for their disaffiliation. It was that they couldn't be relied upon to be impartial. And I think UCL has also... They gave us a reason it was impacting their ability to think critically on issues which were still to be discussed around sex gender. So there are plenty of good reasons why the party should be defili- defiliating from Stonewall. And as soon as I or others put these motions forward, we do get and have been attacked. Same with um, motions around um, transgender healthcare. Now, and I would say that I've been proved right with respect to concerns around the GITS clinic. So the Green Party could have been putting uh, motions like this, could have been formulating policy on conference floor and getting majorities for it and showing the way um, amongst the left in politics. And I think we still can do that. We can and we must do better uh, across all those fronts.
0: It's incredible, isn't it, the way that the The Challoner example here is one where child protection issues and safeguarding are just pushed down the ladder, and that the trans agenda trumps the safety and protection of children by which I mean if if you're looking at the 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 Amy Challoner case, here is an extremely vulnerable young adult who had been in the care system. And yet the party at the time didn't recognise those vulnerabilities and in fact put Challoner up uh, in a leadership role, which would have been extremely stressful being propelled into this kind of leadership position and also would obscure what was going on in terms of Challoner's own vulnerabilities. But how the party was adopting this, this ideology above and beyond anything else at the time and also you know issues of which stonewall repeatedly um bring up so called trans healthcare trans children well there are no ch- trans children in my view but healthcare by that they mean hormones um they mean double mastectomies they mean unnecessary surgical intervention that have life-changing consequences. That's not healthcare. I don't call. I don't call facelifts, for example, healthcare. I don't call breast augmentation when we talk about cosmetic surgery. Healthcare. This isn't healthcare at all.
1: Well, what what we can do, even if you you know you look at um, the health policy that we do have in the party, what you can do is um, you can make a very clear statement about what the party would or should be saying. It's very clear. We prioritise. Uh, mental health provision, and we uh, should have no uh, compunction about saying that anybody, irrespective of numbers, because that can obscure maybe that every case is different, but irrespective of numbers, any individual, and the numbers then put a different gloss on it because it would show you that it could be a trend here which needs further investigation, um, as with the GID's exponential rises, but any individual coming for an assessment, that should be multi-pronged. And it should involve, you know, all healthcare professionals, and there should not be a bias in favour of a particular pathway of treatment on the basis of what might, after all, be um, very insecure grounds. And we do not, generally speaking, take the testimony, particularly of somebody who um, may not have uh, sufficient competency to make decisions which are going to massively impact and alter their life. Sometimes hugely negatively, if it's an experimental drug, we would not generally take their word for it. So there hasn't been enough robust due diligence, as has been demonstrated by the Webberley's cases. Both, not just one, both of them having faced their own disciplinary investigations, both of them upheld in part or in whole. They were responsible, co-responsible, and have been and still running a um, a business which prioritises so-called gender-affirming Healthcare. Gender affirming healthcare. Since we are talking about party policies and green politics, gender affirming healthcare is not party policy. But we have been um, guilty of some kind of policy mission creep. Where there's been a bit of a vacuum because the details haven't been fleshed out. There's only so much you can derive from the pol- or the statement trans women and women. There's only so much you can derive from that. I would say that it's a statement of ambition to um, include and integrate trans people as much as possible in society. As stands, that's a noble ambition, but it doesn't go into the nitty-gritty if their conflict should arise. Judicial review into prisons policy made it very clear that it was a conflict of sorts. I think that's obvious, but let's have it set out for us how that might be. There's even a conflict in perception. How is it that... The perception of one side of the disagreement only takes precedence, and the perception, even if it was only that, let alone that it has good grounds and reason, gets completely ignored. So you know that's the kind of—it's even nothing to do. You know, it is something to do um, with the, the the class of peoples affected. But for me, it's injustice. You know, I fight for the the justice of all. So what we've got—gender affirming healthcare—is not party policy. I defy anybody to show me that it is. I've been able to provide. Um, in a recent questionnaire, I've been able to provide a long answer on a question which is supposed to be yes or no on how it's not party policy. And actually, we would be saying the opposite. We would be saying that there needs to be good quality due diligence, a little bit like the Cass Review. As a, as a party of science and evidence, what we, we should be saying, if we don't want to nail our colours to the mast, is we are going to wait for the deliverances, some of which have really come out in the interim, of the Cass Review. What we should not be doing is encouraging bad decision makings on the basis of limited evidence and with no track record and with no proper studies having been done. I mean, it is, uh, as I think you and others um, have described, you know, it is an extraordinary medical scandal.
0: Yes. And and actually, uh, as horrific as it is for you, and I'm sorry that, this has happened to you and that this is happening to you, I want to now spend the next five minutes talking about how we can support you, how the case is going, any timeline that you might be aware of so far, and yes, what we can do to ensure that this isn't something that you're on your own with, because this is going to have ramifications for so many of us and for every political party in the land.
1: Well, thank you for that. And I have to say first that I couldn't have survived it as much as I have so far without all the moral support that I've had. And it has been extraordinary. And, you know, a lot of politics, as we know, happens uh, in social media, on Twitter in particular. And there have been some brilliant, you know, advocates there, not just for the cause, but it's in the way in which they debate. You know, what's really extraordinary is when you look at... um, some people call it toxicity the divisiveness of the debate you get the abuse generally speaking you could do some kind of um computation on it you would see very clearly you know trigger words and all the rest of it you would very see very clearly where the which direction the majority the vast majority that i see is coming from one side only because that's the no debate stance that is the that is what it does it it prevents it stops people from being able to think clearly but I would say one of, the, one of the best ways in which people can continue to help me and others facing these cases is to hold themselves well and carry a good argument. And often, I mean, it's the wit as well. I mean, you get the flourishes in between, which just, you know, it, it just makes things so much easier. It, it's the way in which the argument is done so effectively. And that's why no debate, I think, has been on its on its. On its I like to say it's on its way out but I think because it's still a fair way to go, but that's why it was so debilitating um, for right reason to prevail. Um, you know, there is obviously the uh, the financial burden and struggle, if you like, of the case, and people have been committing uh, to the fundraiser and, and more than once, and so I, I thank them for continuing to do that. Um, uh, you know i just think thanks for the the moral support which has been uh incalculable and i think that has been the main thing um i think i would have somehow continued you know in isolation and i'm just so glad i'm not in isolation because i've made you know so many good contacts and friends um it's it's been that's been the thing that I think has helped me to survive both, you know, uh, internally and outside, because it is a wider issue. That's the thing that's helped me um, in in this struggle. Um, and, you know, I think the other thing as well, if I may say, and we've been talking about children in a way. That gives me great strength as well, great motivation to do what it is that I feel I need to do personally, because, you know, by their very nature, Um, children are vulnerable they're at the stage in their lives when they need support they need the right information and they are at their most vulnerable in terms of manipulation and i think that that gives me great strength because they can't by their very nature understand the world to the capacity that's required to overcome um potentially some of the manipulation that's going on and and wrong influence and so we need to do that it is our duty I wouldn't be able to live with myself, I wouldn't be able to... However difficult it might be as it is, I simply think that the alternative is completely impossible for me.
0: Yes, and it's something that will absolutely um, do good because it will put the party and its actions and policies and its shadow policies under scrutiny. Do you see, um, just to, to, to finish our conversation... I want to know if you can see a future for the Green Party for people such as yourself and can it move forward in a properly progressive way after this totalitarian regime appears to have swamped it for so long
1: Um I think we can and the reason is is is, is you know Gandhi springs to mind here in you know in terms of when you're winning and the the amount of backlash you get and I think we're kind of at that stage so the hostility is great but also the fight back is great and the fight back is stronger and the reason why it's not just the greens and i've i've never been i really don't feel uh, tribal about politics it's not something that i've gone in for i think you'll probably find also that far less than some of my colleagues i go in for bashing um, opposition polit- politicians and i think i'm an optimist um, about human nature i like to um persuade and I don't think people are beyond moral reach. That's my point. I want to be able to sit around the table and find and negotiate peaceful solutions. And I think that at its core, that's what green politics is about. It, it should be inspiring. It should be all-inclusive, properly all-inclusive. And we are really selling ourselves short at the moment because instead of trying to write people off for saying you don't already agree with me, so that's you gone, that's a voter gone. That's somebody who, how are we going to deal with the extraordinarily challenge of um the climate emergency if we're going to write people off who we need on board to persuade one way or another if not to vote for us to come on board the social and political transformation that's required in order to save them from the worst excesses of uh, our overconsumptive lifestyles how are we going to persuade them for already writing them off um for the sake of a disagreement which we apparently they're morally beyond the pale and they're fascistic and you know, the real dangers, the real challenges that we face are how are we going to persuade people. And You know, there's a big debate already going on in terms of um, non-violent direct action. What are the best means to the end in terms of Extinction Rebellion and the offshoots of that? How can we actually persuade people, bring people on board, win friends and influence people? And I'm in the win friends and influence people game. I want to be able to talk face-to-face with opposition politicians. I don't want to write anybody off. And that starts in our party. So it's a cultural problem. It's a deep cultural um, authoritarianism that has set in that needs to be overcome. And therein lies hope for all political parties, particularly on on the left, where, you know, we've become so extreme and so fanatical. Um, The real danger is is that if... Because that fanaticism, finally... That fanaticism, it betrays infallibility. It betrays that that person knows themselves to be right. And that's scary. There is, at no point can they correct their viewpoint. That's genuine fanaticism. Whereas I, I like to think that although I hope my views are correct, they will survive scrutiny. And that's why we go into a debate with strength because, generally speaking, I think our views do survive scrutiny.
0: I really respect Shara, despite the fact that I'm really quite vehemently opposed to many Green Party policies. Of course, I don't mean about its concern and work towards maintaining the health of the environment and campaigning against the climate crisis but many of its other stances, as you heard in that interview. Please support Shara Ali's case. You can see the crowdfund link on this substack. Speak to you soon.